Have you ever thought of a song? Brad, let me ask you a question first. Are we on? Try that? Go better? All right. Didn't move it far enough. Okay, let me ask you the question. How many of you were singing along with those two songs? Is the message absolutely beautiful? And then when you put it to music, now it's twice as beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, that's the intention of music. And it's amazing. You know, I have a, I have a playlist on my phone and when I travel by myself, there's songs that come on. And when one song ends, I can start the next one before it ever begins. And I don't think about it. It's just something that happens. Have you ever thought that when we imprint truth in the beauty of music, that it sticks with us forever? The power of music. Appreciate those two songs. Much appreciated. Two of my many, many, many favorites. All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. <clears throat> Time to open your Bibles. We just read John 19.30 where it says, when Jesus received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. What does finished mean? It's done. It's over with. It's been accomplished. It is no more. So the next question is, what's finished? When Christ said, it is finished, what was finished? You know, one of the things I do, and I apologize, is uh, when I put this headset on, I take my hearing aids out. So you guys all said the right answer. That's fine, but I didn't hear you, okay? Anyway, so let's take a look at what is finished when Jesus said it is finished. It's not the plan of salvation because he fulfilled that part, his part of it. And we get a clue when we go to John 17. Just back a few pages in John 17, 4. His intercessory prayer. And they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the middle of this prayer, he says, I have glorified thee on earth. And who's he glorifying? His Father. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So what was the work that his Father gave him to do? To pay the penalty for our sins. Okay, that's, that's a very good answer, and it can be broken down into some legal terms, and that's what I'd like to share with you today. What are the wages of sin? Okay, we have two clues. Wages usually deal with money. We go work for a wage, correct? 
Okay, and when we work at all these things that we need to do and everything that we do, but all it culminates in is death. So we're being paid, not in money, but in death. Correct? Are you following? Okay. So could we liken it unto a debt? It's something we can't get rid of? Now, if I were to ask today, how many of you are absolutely debt-free? <laughs> debt. When it comes to money, how many of us are debt-free? There's a few hands. There's a few hands. Good, good. Okay, but how does it pertain to Jesus? What's the debt that you and I inherit? It's death. It's death. It comes back to death. It's our wages. Our wages for living our life culminate in death. Is that, is that a correct statement? Okay, and what did Jesus do to death? He obliterated it, didn't he? Because here he is, he's at rest in the tomb, and what happened on Sunday morning? So did death have a hold on him? Okay, so his whole mission then was to come back and free us from the debt of sin and give us life. All right? Now, you guys enjoy debt? Well, you know, the devil says, hey, it looks like fun. Let's go out and buy a bunch of toys and let's go into debt. And we find out uh, you can't afford some of those toys. And sometimes they just sit in the garage and gather dust. And you wonder, what in the world was I thinking? And even it comes down to how many of us try to take and have fun. Oh, boy. Anybody have fun with debt? It's kind of a worrisome thing, isn't it? Especially if I get a notice that's saying, okay, guys, due to the economy, uh, I'm going to terminate and we're going to have to take a sabbatical or something from your work, and you no longer have a paycheck. Is that stress? The debt of stress, the stress of debt can just be overwhelming and people are burdened down to it. And when we look at it within the context of sin and are earning our wages and the only thing that we get is we earn sin. Can I do anything to pay off my debt? Can I keep the law? Now, it's very interesting. If you take the word debtor, debt, and you start looking at it, and it says even those who try to keep the law, you notice the word try? are a debtor to the law. And let's look at the example of the Jews back in the time of Jesus. When it came to the law, were they good people? They thought they were. Even Paul says when it comes to the law, I am not guilty of the law. But it didn't get me anything. I am still a debtor grace oh so I just hit on another thing there 
So if Jesus took away the debt of sin and took away the debt of death, what did he give us? Gave us freedom. He separated us from bondage. And did not, is that not the preamble to the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God who has delivered you out of the bondage in the house of Israel or house of Egypt. He set us free. What did he do to the debt? He paid it. He paid it. And if the penalty for debt, the penalty and what the law does to us and shows us is we all deserve to die. And Jesus came back to show the work of his father that he wants us alive. So he paid the debt. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father, for everything he's given us to release us from debt. Oh, what a joy it is to take something that you pay that last payment. And I am free from debt. We should have an attitude of I am free from the wages of sin. In Christ Jesus, I am alive. And even though I may sleep, what's the future hold for me? Have you ever thought how long eternity is to live? It's, it's, it's unimaginable, isn't it? Especially when I get up in the morning and I realize that I'm getting older. And when I go down to put on my socks, I must be growing because it takes me longer to get down close to my foot and it takes me longer to stand up. So I must be getting taller. Can you imagine somebody who's passed on, who has suffered on resurrection morning to get up with energy of a toddler or youth? I mean, it just, it, 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 raises, it raises the hair in the back of my neck when I try to imagine that. You know, I just, I just had one of my lenses replaced in my eye. And one of the things you'll notice, if anybody else has ever done, when I look at that back wall with the eye that uh, has a new lens, it's bright. And I close that eye and open the other one, and oh, you guys need to dust that wall. It is so brown and dirty. <laughs> to be able to see and then when you guys, when I ask a question, to be able to hear And to grow and not have any pains? To be 12, 13 feet tall? Oh, my. What a glorious father we serve who is so interested in us that he wants to give us life and life like Adam and Eve have, free of the debt of sin. Thank you, Lord. There's another way of looking at it, too, a contract. You know, I was a general contractor for 44 years. I've written many different contracts. And some, the job went fantastic. Others was the biggest headache I've ever experienced. 
But when it came down to the end of the job and the contract was finished, I could take that contract and I could file it away and it becomes nothing more than a memory. We could take and apply it to the words, it is finished, that Jesus said on the cross. And what was the contract that Jesus and his father came up with and offered to us? Would you like to see it? You know, there is a contract that he gave us. It had happened really quick right after Adam and Eve ate the fruit of the tree. Is that a clue? Let's go to Genesis 3. Starts in verse 14. Here's the contract that God the Father and God the Son took and they put together and he offered it to Adam and Eve as a promise when they were standing in front of him guilty. He says, I'm going to give you a contract and this contract is patterned to bring out the best in you and to give you the hope that you now need when you realize that you have stepped into the wages of sin, of which the just wage is death, but I'm going to give you a contract that shows you have hope. And then he spoke to this, starting in verse 14. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou hast cursed above all cattle, above every beast of the field, upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. That's the contract that our father and the son came up with to offer to Adam and Eve the hope that they will have. I will put enmity. Now let's break it down to something a little more practical. When I was a kid, I lived in Northern California. And one of the things you, when you walked outside and everything else, you must be aware of rattlesnakes. And I can remember many times uh, seeing rattlesnakes. I was, I was born in, in this, this area of Northern California until I attended, started, needed to start school way out in a little town called Honeydew in Northern California. And there were rattlesnakes all over the place, and we were trained to always be on the watch. And I can remember going down to the swimming hole at the river one time, walking through some brush along the banks of the river, and I was the last one to come along, and I noticed right there in front of me, uh, about this big around, looked like a limb laying right across the path, and it was a rattlesnake because it moved and went on past. Everybody had stepped over it. Well, I yelled at my dad, and he came back, and he caught it, and we had wide mouth gallon jugs, and he would coil it up and put it down inside the jug and then tape it shut. We put it on the back porch, and we could you know, tap on the glass and kind of antagonize a little bit. The thing would get so angry at us that it would just spit, not spit venom, but it would just strike that glass and they could see the venom just running down the glass. 
Well, my experience with a snake was, is I used, my dad logged, and I used to ride with him. He, bought, he had bought an old uh, army surplus, deuce and a half, and it converted it into a bobtail log truck. And it just had regular brakes on it, just like our cars have today, only it was just pads, not disc. And to keep, when you get a big load of logs on it, coming down out of the mountains, the brakes would get hot. So he got an old galvanized hot water tank and he put it up above the cab, ran a garden hose down there with a little spigot on it and he could drip water on the brakes to keep it cool. And I used to ride with him, I'm like five years old. I used to ride with him. And we'd come to stretches in the road, he'd say, okay, get behind me, because if I lose the brakes and I have to jump, I want you to make sure you go with me. So I'd stand behind him in the driver's seat with my arms around his neck, and away we'd go. And there was a one place coming down, there were several switchbacks in, and the farmers in the area had burned off all, all the timber, so it was just grasslands. There were switchbacks coming down the mountain. And it was quite a ways, and so my dad would say, okay, Ron, I want you to walk. I'll pick you up at the bottom because this is just too dangerous. I don't want you riding with me. Because if something happens, I don't know if I can save you. So it was my object to always try to beat him to the bottom of the hill. So I wouldn't follow the road. I'd just head off down over the hill. But he always beat me. And I wanted to get to the gate down by the river. I wanted to beat him bad. So this one day, I'm going for broke. I am going to give it everything I've got, and I am going to run. No fear, no nothing. So we cut in, come into cuts in the bank, and the banks were just like this. And I'm not exaggerating. I just fly down them. I just jump and slide. And I'm going like everything. I get down to the road at the bottom of the hill. I'm going to beat him to the gate. I am so excited. And I, the dust, it was the summertime. The dust was about this thick in the road, real fine dust. I'm poof, 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 poof. I'm going for broke. I'm going to be down there. I'm going to be all rested. I'm going to even be breathing hard by the time he comes. I'll beat him so bad. And I came around a corner. It was in, it was in the morning, probably about 9, 10 o'clock. And stretched in the dust was a rattlesnake about five feet long. Now, I don't know if I'm exaggerating or not because I didn't, I didn't uh, look at him a lot. I didn't have time to process because fear took over. And I tried to stop, and I fell down, and I rolled right over that rattlesnake. I, to this day, I can remember sliding on my hip with my hand up here and that snake hitting me in the ribs and then my arm, the ribs and the arm, the ribs and the arm. You know, in the cartoons they show, when you get up and run, you just kind of stand in place, and your feet are just going like crazy, and then they hit the ground and take off with whiplash. That's what I did. I didn't look behind me. I just wanted to get away from that snake. The fear that I had of that snake because of what I had been told would happen if he bit me. We lived six hours to the nearest hospital. Well, I made it to the gate. I opened the gate. I'm sitting there on a rock. My dad comes around the corner. He forgot about brakes. He saw all the commotion and the dust. And he comes down there and he slides that truck to a stop and he jumps out. Are you okay? Are you okay? What happened? So I told him. I fell on the snake. I said, did he bite you? And he's looking at me all over, checking for puncture wounds. No, he didn't bite me. I think the snake was as scared as I was because he'll put enmity between you and the serpent. That's a, that is how we should look 
at the devil. We should absolutely hate him. Hate him. And the contract that God offered us was, I will put that hatred for the devil and sin available to you. All you have to do is accept it. Now, if I were to bring in a garter snake, how many people would get up and head for the back door? Another real quick one. I found a baby garter snake at a ball game one time. It was about 9 o'clock at night. It was only about this long. And there was one of the girls was standing right in front of me. And so I picked it up. And this little garter snake uh, must have been pretty warm because he was aggressive. And he turned around and he bit my finger. And I could even feel it because his mouth was so small and he was so small. But he was just hanging on my finger. And I said, hey, Alyssa, look at this. And she turns around. It was a softball game, and she let out the most blood-curdling scream that it scared me, and it scared the snake, and he dropped and took off. An illustration of us in practicality when we come in the presence of snakes on how God has put a hatred in our heart for the devil. But how many of us run from the devil like we do a snake? Get away from him. Get away from him. But you know the contract also says that I'm going to bruise the head of the snake. A year ago, I was in Africa, in Kenya. And just before I got there, Jerry, my uncle, was walking by the grade school. And grade school's on the right. There's a, a patch, patch of brush, jungle on the left. And there's a little black snake crawling across the way. Well, Jerry's not too afraid of snakes. And it's a little tiny one. But the African that was with him runs over and stomps on the snake's head. That's a black mamba. And being a young one, he's more dangerous than a mature. You think the snake survived? What's part of the contract that God has offered us? Not only am I going to teach you to hate sin and to hate the devil, but eventually there's going to be an end. It is finished. The devil will be no more. Do you get the picture? Who was Jesus thinking about when he was hanging on the cross? Us. Who was Jesus thinking about as that Roman soldier doubled up his fist, and then hit him as hard as he could. Who was Jesus thinking about when they unleashed the cat of nine tails on his back? My Bible says he was beaten beyond recognition. Who was he representing? And who did he have a contract with? 
and he held up every inch and every letter of his contract. And by his death and his resurrection, he took, and I have a couple contracts, and when I got done doing that job, I enjoyed ripping him up. Jesus ripped up that contract because it is finished, it's done, it's accomplished, it's over, it's completed. He has provided salvation for you. But I'm not done yet. There's another way of looking at it is finished. And that's in the context of a war. Was there war in heaven? And what happened? Yeah. God prevailed, cast out the devil, but he's still at war. Somewhere between birth and three years old, Jesus, living in Bethlehem, and the devil strikes with an offensive thrust because the object of war is to kill, to kill your opponent. And when Jesus was just a little kid, there was an edict issued to kill everybody younger than two years old in Bethlehem. But what happened? Joseph had a dream, says, go to Egypt. Who won the battle? Who lost? The devil did. Who won? God did. We looked at the, at the uh, temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. The devil included every aspect of life he can possibly think of in those three temptations. And he got him in the weakest condition he could possibly think of, 40 days without food. They say if you go longer than 40, death is guaranteed. You will not survive. So he's right there at the edge. What do you think his mental capacity was as a human being? But what was his strength? his connection with his father through those years up because right after that he entered into his ministry. He became an active part of doing the work that his father had sent him to do. Ellen White says, if there's one advantage that Jesus had over you and I was the dedication of his mother and how she homeschooled him about his father. God the Father. Yeah. Yes. Does not Paul recognize the duty of mothers? Yeah. That's the raising of your kids. And he was able to take the devil on in battle, full battle in a weakened condition and come out victorious because he remembered what his mother had taught him about his father. And his answer in all three cases was, it is written and the devil was defeated 
Let's look at the trial of Jesus. The beating that he took. Because he represented us, he stayed quiet. Because of the contract that he had signed, because he was willing to pay the debt, he was willing to go to war for you and I, he kept his mouth shut. And the devil knew that as long as there was life in Jesus, there was a hope that he could win the war. And I think if any time in, in Jesus' history, in man's history, in earth's history, that we were free from the harassment of the devil and all of his evil angels was when he was hanging on the cross and the devil is screaming at him with his demons. They're all just screaming at him. You are not the son of God. You have the power to come down off of that cross. But Jesus stood, he hung there for you and me because there was a war that was being fought and the devil was throwing every power and every ounce that he possibly could at Jesus. And Jesus stood firm and he won the war. He could say, it is finished. then I have to ask myself, is it really finished? And that's where I'm going to leave you. I want you guys to ask it. If Jesus has done his Father's work in paying off our debt, in fulfilling the contract, in winning the war, what's our part? What's our part? Why are we told to arm ourselves with the armor of God? How come we have a quarter this, this year or this, this next quarter accordingly that's teaching us about missions? Is there still a war going on? Yeah, there is. There is. And now who's the war over? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. It's a war over us. And what? guess what, guys? Because the debt has been paid, because I've been released from bondage, I've been released from debt, because the contract is fulfilled, the war has been won, I can say I belong to Jesus, and the devil has absolutely no power over me. It is a choice that I can make. So is it finished? Yes and no would be the correct answer. Jesus finished it for me, and I can claim it. And then when... Someday when he comes again, when we read in 1 Corinthians 15 and that glorious descending of our Father or of Jesus coming back to save us, what happens to death? No more. Oh, death, where is, where is your sting? And has victory been gained over death? Absolutely. I might not have it right now by faith. I possess all these promises. I possess all these battles that have been won for me. And I can stand. Let's look at Paul for a minute and Silas in prison. Were they in bondage? They were in the stockade. 
They were prisoners. And if you sit down flat on the floor, put your hands out in front of you, and write down that stockade is around your ankles, now bend forward and put your wrists in the same position. I can't do it. How uncomfortable was he? But because they knew what Jesus had done for them, what were they doing? Singing and praising God. And what kind of an influence did they have on the people that were fellow prisoners? The earthquake comes. The stockade is broken. What do you think Paul and Silas did? Let's get out of here. No, if you think if the stockade was broken, what happened to the building? If you look at the evidences of earthquakes when they do not have structural integrity, what happens to the building? And if there were other prisoners in prison with Paul and Silas, what do you think Paul and Silas were doing? Checking on the prisoners. I'm sure they heard people moaning and groaning because they'd been hurt. And Paul and Silas are there, you're okay. They probably ripped off a shirt, ripped off a robe, and they bandaged up bleeding people. And because of their testimony of them putting on the armor of God, they were taking and fighting a war that God has already won, and the devil was trying to kill them. But their testimony was that not a single prisoner left that building that had been destroyed and they could have walked free. And who did it benefit? The jailer and his family because when he comes in, he's ready to commit suicide. My prisoners have escaped. But because of the testimony of Paul and Silas singing praises, gaining the confidence of the prisoners, ministering to their needs and somebody comes in and watches and then they're able to present what God has done for them. And as a result of that battle, the jailer and his family are counted as citizens of heaven. Fantastic, isn't it? How many other stories are there like that? The Bible's full of them. While Jesus said it is finished, it's his part. But when there is a debt, there are two people minimum involved. When there's a contract, there's a minimum of two people involved. When there's a war, there's a minimum of two people involved involved. You want a, a little history lesson? After World War II, the European continent made a statement. I'm going to ask you why. The United States at the beginning of World War II was ranked way down, somewhere around number 30 in world powers. Military readiness, and military ability. I can't even think of 30 countries. You know, I think of Rhodesia. Were they the military power? Who was more power? Who were 29 people more powerful 
than the United States. Obviously, Germany, England, France, some of the others. Thirty, were we prepared? But you know what the European leadership said about the United States? They said, if it hadn't been for Protestant America, we would be all under the bondage of Germany. How come they said Protestant America? When you look at words, they mean something. They understood because you know what America did? World War II, they released people. They recognized the need that the Germans were enslaving Europe. The Japanese were enslaving the Far East. And they said, that's not right. And we exist as Protestant America to come to the rescue of the oppressed. And what did we come up with after World War II for Europe? Did you ever hear of the Marshall Plan? What did it do? It took the oppressed, the people who had been beat down, and it gave them the opportunity. In fact, they gave them the tons and tons and millions of tons of food. But you know what else they gave them? They gave them seeds. They gave them gardening implements, and they taught them how to grow their own gardens because the most of Germany and most of Europe had integrated or had moved, migrated to the big cities where they no longer had their roots in the dirt, and they no longer knew how to grow their own food. But Protestant America came back and they gave them all the tools they needed to get back into freedom. And that freedom involved no longer a hungry stomach. I just finished reading a book about what Japan did to China, what they did to all those islands out there. You know, there were more people killed by samurai stones than bullets. The Japanese were saying, and this, this is an institution. This is an establishment. It's not individuals because individuals bought into it. But they said we were God ordained to rule the world. And if you don't agree with me, then I'll make you my slave. And most of the people, they killed. Why was the word Protestant America used? Because they recognized a need and they applied themselves to it to take the oppressed and set them free. I wish they could say Protestant Seventh-day Adventist. Do we recognize the oppressed? And then do we put the armor of God on, on and we set the oppressed free? Debbie, I want you to hand me that. I've got the wrong one, but I want to illustrate something. I hear my hand. This is not yours. Yours is bigger. It's out in the car. 
Libby just hosted Messiah's Mansion. Libby, the Libby Adventist Church just host, hosted Messiah's Mansion. We had almost 1,700 people go through the exhibit of the sanctuary. Upon their exit, we asked them to fill out an exit survey. This is the Trout Creek, Thompson Falls area. That's the request for Bible studies. You see? Okay, I have the one for Bonner's Ferry out in the car. It's bigger than this one. Out of almost 1,700 people that took and responded, I can count on my fingers how many times we got a negative response. I haven't counted the total of Bonner's Ferry's requests for Bible studies. Libby, we have about 400 of these. We have 116 requests for Bible studies. The oppressed are asking for help. I brought him with me today to share with you. That's the point I want to make. There is a lot of people out there wanting answers. When they see things like the conflict between the Hamas and the Israelis, they're wanting to know why. What's the hope? When I read Desire of Ages, in the very few first few chapters, there is a chapter entitled, The Fullness of Time Has Come, and Jesus came the first time because people were sick and tired of the oppression of the Romans. They no longer trusted leadership because nobody was giving them any hope. There was a common language that was understood all through the then known civilized world, and that was Greek. You could always find somebody that could spoke and you could translate to them. When I go to Africa, when I go to Mexico, when I travel outside the United States, where it's a foreign country, I can always find somebody that speaks English. It's usually a little kid, and I get them to come, and you're my buddy for the time I'm here because you're going to translate for me, and I can get my message across the questions that I have. They were looking for hope. The fullness of time has come. And I'm talking about the first advent. The second advent is going to do exactly the same conditions. People are crying out for hope. They're crying out for help. I had one I read. It says, I'm in a very dark place. I'm surrounded by pain and hurt. I want answers. And if they had the guts to write it down on a piece of paper and hand it to a stranger, what are we going to do with it? That belongs to Libby. It's not yours. Somebody's got to step up and answer that young man. Are you and I tired? of the chaos 
that's in this world? Are you and I tired of no hope that the world can offer us economically? Are we on solid ground? Politically, are we on solid ground? Do I trust any political leader? I had an individual tell me one time when Trump and, and Hillary were running against each other, they were facing death. And they said, you know, the one regret that I have is I'm going to die before I know which of the two idiots is going to be the next president of the United States. And we laughed. But isn't that where we are? Is there anybody out there that's offering us any hope? Where are we going to find hope? Are we oppressed as citizens of this earth? Where are we going to find hope? And people, they're asking for help. They're asking for hope. They're asking for somebody to come and rescue them. It's time to put on the armor of God like we studied about just a few weeks ago. It's time to accept the mission that we have to step up and commit to a cause that answers the world's questions in us offering them the grace of God our Father and the gift of his Son. Father, as we leave this place today, let it be with the understanding of what you have done for each and every one of us. What you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do. And Father, give us the gifts of the Spirit that we'll be able to take and share with these that come in contact. We can't influence the political arena of the United States. We can't even influence the political arena of the state of Idaho or Montana. But I can influence my friends and the people I come in contact with this next week. So, Father, put on in our hearts the desire to commit to you in a way that we can take and put on the armor of God and we can go to battle and we can set the oppressed free is our desire of our hearts. Bless us is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.